I don't know if I've seen too many companies that have been able to cater to the largest enterprises in the world with a feature set solution and product, and also able to cater to some of the smallest, most agile and kind of um, SMBs, right? To be able to cater to both of those audiences, there's not too many data points out there. So it's an ambitious undertaking. And I think kind of the product market fit is a really important prerequisite. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins. And I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. Before we jump in with our amazing guest today, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Loom. If you haven't heard of Loom, you should definitely check them out. They're bringing video messaging to work. Using Loom is like sending a text instead of making a phone call, but you're using video. You don't need to schedule anything or coordinate with anyone. Just record, hit stop, and a link to your video message is instantly ready to share. Turns out it's really good for sales. Our portfolio companies use Loom when they're doing outreach and sending a demo video is just so much more engaging than an email. It's super fast, fun, and the best part, it's free. Sign up today at loom.com. And now on to this episode. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here. I'm going to start with your background. And this is from some of the LinkedIn data that I, uh, that I browse. So if there's anything that I'm missing, let me know. Went to Berkeley. You joined Oracle in 96 and looks like you had an eight-year run there as a sales rep. You then went to Salesforce spent a couple years as a rep, quickly becoming the VP of corporate sales, which you did for four years, then promoted to the AVP of SMB North America sales for two years, then again promoted to senior AVP shortly after that, became the SVP of commercial for Asia Pacific, spent two years doing that. So I guess in some about 10 years at Salesforce before going to Slack, where you started as the VP of sales Gosh, almost three and a half-ish years ago? Just hit four at Slack. So yeah, time flies when you're having four fun. Years, four years. And now you are the SVP of sales and customer success. Did I get that right? You got that right. Gosh, walk down memory lane. That's awesome. The two topics that I wanted to chat with you today are the growth levers at Slack that you guys might be able to pull to take it to the next level of the business and what the next four years looks like as well as competition. And I want to explore a little bit about, you know, how you think about competition. Does it make you better? Does it make you worse? And that kind of thing. So we feel like you're very uniquely qualified to touch on these things. And we're excited to have you again. Fantastic. I'm going to start with the bio on Slack for anyone that may not be familiar at this point, $13 billion market cap, 1 billion messages per week sent using the service, 119,000 paid customers, 600,000 organizations are using Slack today. 65 of the Fortune 100 are paying customers. It is, I think, objectively now the fastest growing business application in history by some of these numbers, which is pretty incredible. You've been at Slack for four years. How many people were there when you started? Oh, goodness. I'm trying to remember back at that time. I think the time I was interviewing might have been around two... 280, something like that, 280, 300 people. And how many now? We're right around 2,000 now. And of those 2,000, how many people are in your organization? I don't know if we've broken it out 
quite to that degree, but just suffice to say it's grown from a really, really small component. I mean, in the early days of Slack, it was primarily a kind of web-based e-commerce kind of credit card business. And um, we've invested on top of that to really build an enterprise go-to-market team to complement that. And so now it's a you know pretty substantial component of the company. Tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think the reason they brought you in was to really up-level the game and trajectory of the way that Slack thinks about selling and go-to-market. And I want to talk about that kind of extensively. But before we do, how do you grow so quickly and not sacrifice quality, continue to maintain that bar, but also making sure that you have you know enough feet on the street to really make a dent? That's an interesting question. I think Stuart was quoted as saying, a lot of things need to come together, right? So you know, Stuart Butterfield, our co-founder and CEO, is there's a lot of hard work, but there's also a lot of luck involved and some tailwinds. So some degree of there's a business need and we stumbled across this business need and this business problem to solve. So product market fit, and then of really working hard to expand on that and bring the goodness of Slack to a broader audience. So I think, you know, a lot of things coming together. I can go a little bit deeper into the growth story, but the early stages of it was that we had so much momentum and self-service, you know, team signups and web-based sales. And it was actually a lot of the investors that encouraged leadership and Stuart to invest in a customer-facing team. Because as you get into larger and larger organizations, there's kind of more and more complexities to navigate, whether that's everything from security and compliance to, you know, office politics, that all the different things to navigate. I'm trying to think where the research came from that most enterprise decisions now involve at least nine constituents in the decision-making process. And so for the small and medium businesses where the owner's kind of pushing the button to buy Slack on a website, obviously, as you get into larger and larger companies, it's more like maybe not in this day and age, but pushing a, um, a bill through the Senate or trying to get it through the House, the Senate and through formal approvals. And so investing in a customer facing team to help navigate those cycles was something that, that our investors really encouraged our team to do. And that's you know right around four years ago when we started to materially invest in that part of the business. And then on the sales side for you, like I can't help but think about you went from 300 to 2000 people, I think you said now, right? Yeah. And some portion of that, whatever it is, is sales. How do you like, okay, the mandate was given to you and you were hired like, Bob, we need to go get this thing going. What processes do you put in place or how are you thinking about like, we got to go get the best of the best and we got to do it really, really fast. How do you balance that? Yeah, no, that's so that was a stay awake issue in the very early days. And I think if you speak more broadly around what our priorities consistently, and I share these openly with our team, I mean, not just our leadership team, but we pivoted from an in-person to a digital global sales offsite this year, but we're really open on our vision and our plan, you know, and we've used some form of kind of OKRs, but the key thing is building a great team. And that starts with recruiting top talent and getting a foundational team in, and then really starting to look for not just the skills and competencies, but also you know the right values, value set and culture to build a great team. And if you think about it, I'd say foundational to growth are team and customers and customer success. So those are the three pillars that we spend a lot of energy on is building a healthy team, customers as our North Star and driving their success. And if we do those things well, then the growth comes. And so that's where a lot of our energy and foresight and planning and effort is around those three pillars. No doubt. On the skill set, competencies and values, can you share like what are those? What are the things that you're looking for? And maybe that's changed over time. 
Yeah, I uh, think, maybe it you know, hasn't. it's interesting because you talk about that. It's like, okay, how can we be really thoughtful around our approach there and really aligned? So we actually spent a lot of energy in the early days on that topic exactly and pulled together kind of sales, sales leadership, success, success leadership with learning and development, as well as recruiting and try to be really, again, specific and thoughtful around reverse engineering the top teammate. And what are the skills and competencies? So one always is past behaviors, always a good indicator of future. So a track record of success. And that doesn't always equate to a track record of success in sales per se, but maybe somewhere else in life in their education or in hobbies or sports. But a track record of success is a good indicator of future success. What are some other skills and competencies? Certainly, we'll talk more about grit, but I think motivation and competitiveness is an important one. I think communication skills, business acumen, listening, the ability to to really listen and be attuned to your customers. So those are some of the things that we look for in our customer-facing team. Makes sense. A lot of the time when you guys are hiring from maybe some of your peers, just consider it fast-growing companies, okay? Companies that have been super successful, but nonetheless grows really, really quickly. Every rep, if you go on their LinkedIn, every sales manager, for the most part, they've hit their quotas. They've been the president's club. It's pretty consistent, right? And it's really hard to tell the signal from the noise, especially at these incredibly fast growing companies, because sometimes you're just one of the boats rising with the tide. Maybe that's an unfair perspective, but how can you really tell the difference there from the folks that were really contributing to driving that growth versus the ones that were just participating in that growth? No, I mean, that's uh, that's something that our hiring managers are, are walking through and kind of recruiters every day. But I think a couple of things stand out, right? Like one is references go a long way. So a lot of our talent, a lot of our hires come from references. So that's one Then I just think getting into those specific areas and having an open conversation around the ability to sell value or the ability to navigate a line of business leadership, mindshare, as well as kind of navigating IT and selling to IT. So walk me through a time where you sold value to a CFO or walk me through a time you overcame a competitive objection with a sales leader. Walk me through how you navigated security and compliance in this industry. And I think when you actually walk through those examples, you can find out pretty quickly, has someone sold with value and been able to articulate a clear and compelling ROI to solve a very specific business problem? And when you get into the details and walk through a very specific sales cycle, you can learn a lot. And especially then patterns emerge. If you go through chronologically their experience, you'll see either a track record of success will emerge or you'll see some different patterns emerge. And at the end of the day, too, it's about finding fit for the individual. And so ultimately, if you flip it and say instead of the, you know, the company qualifying the candidate, the candidate should really be qualifying the company and assessing, is this a good fit for me? Is this a role where I'm teed up to be successful? Do I have the skills and competencies to be successful in this role? And if there's a match, right, everyone's qualifying each other, but ideally you can find a match where it's a good fit for the candidate, it's a good fit for the company. But to answer your question, I think really walking through some of those deal cycles and those customer engagements can be really educational. I love that. Like, I think a lot of people tend to when you go into an interview, the interviewee is asking questions the entire time, and it's not really serving the function of finding a good mutual fit, right? Like so often, companies care so much about making sure it's the right fit for them, but really it's equally as important to make sure it's the right fit for the candidate. Definitely, and that's why I was talking about you know motivation and competitiveness, but it's my experience, the most successful top performers 
are self-motivated, right? And so you're just really tapping into that motivation and really understanding what their goals are, what their vision is, what they're trying to achieve, as well as putting them in a position to be successful, removing obstacles and ensuring they're aligned with an area that they are passionate about and they're motivated to be successful in. And it's really hard to coach motivation, right? And so I think you can definitely stimulate it. You can definitely kind of stoke the fire. But if there is an internal motivation and good kind of skills alignment, then sometimes it could be a, a bumpy path. And so teeing it up so both parties are teed up to be successful is really important. I've always had a hard time qualifying motivation. Like you can look for things, tells like, you know, are you competitive? And you could see if they played sports in college or high school, or, you know, I sometimes ask the question and, hey, what are the logs that really burn your fire? And sometimes you have to ask why a few times over to really get to the essence of what it is about them that makes them gritty, competitive, whatever it is. Do you have any shortcuts, any things that you think about or paths of least resistance to find out if that person is competitive? Well, sometimes a director approach is really effective. What motivates you, right? And I think also, you know, the stories. And so I think I, I like understanding people's personal journeys and, and how they got to where they are and kind of where they want to go. And I think patterns will emerge. And so there's just some incredible stories. If we had more time, I could tell you some of them. But some of the interview stories are, like I said, outside of the office, but earning a scholarship or losing a scholarship and then, you know, working really hard to, to get that scholarship again. There's an inner fire that burns that um, might have been applied in some other part of life. But you know, everyone has kind of unique motivations and kind of unique desires. And I think tapping into those, and that's also another a really fun and rewarding part of management and leadership is helping folks be successful and achieve their goals. And so when you can do that and get that aligned with company goals, it becomes a bit, you know, magical is probably too strong of a word, but, you know, it's ideal because there's happiness and health and then performance. But to qualify that, I think sometimes a direct question, what motivates you? And again, I think walking through the track record and understanding the personal journey and personal story of where that individual's been and how they got there and then where they want to go. So I have a maybe a personal question for you, kind of dovetailing into that thought. You were a, an individual contributor for the first 10-ish years of your career, maybe eight or so, and then you flipped to management. Maybe just share your story of why'd you do it? How'd you do it? Really curious. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm trying to think. It wasn't like a you know the ten year master plan. I guess part of it, and again, it would be a longer story, but um, it would come out as uh, just part of like career growth and career options. And so, always been kind of I don't know some degree of competitiveness, motivation, goal oriented. At the time too, I was in London with Salesforce covering it was at Enterprise FinServe. And interesting kind of side story is I was doing a lot on the philanthropy side too. It was kind of a unique element of Salesforce. And I went volunteer time at this event called Biz Academy, where you work kind of with inner city kids and you was actually introducing them to business. So how to write a resume or a CV and, you know, what a financial statement looked like and just some basic introductions to what is marketing, what is sales. Anyway, long story short, the president of, um, of AMI at the time was there with me and I got to see him speak and I was super inspired by his story. And he talked about the power of having a mentor, not necessarily formal mentor, but someone you could look to for advice. So I'd um, actually hit him up to kind of provide career guidance. And he's someone that was, I want to say, 14 years ago. And he's someone I still stay in touch with, talk to multiple times a year, kind of varies, exchange uh, holiday cards know each other's families. But going back to that period of time, I used him as kind of a sounding board for different ideas and different thoughts. There was some other variables, life variables at play too there. So it was like optimizing for 
business and career, but optimizing for kind of family, health and happiness as well. So at that time I was in London, our daughter was born in London around uh, 2005. And so this was like three years later, we were looking to potentially come home to all of the grandparents were in California. So there was the family side to it as well. And then just, you know, talking with Steve and others, an opportunity arose for a leadership position with Salesforce at headquarters. On top of that, four grandparents that were super excited to kind of get closer to their granddaughter. All of those things kind of came together to where a move back to San Francisco for a you know leadership role made sense. And so it wasn't so simple as, you know, it wasn't like choreographed 10-year plan. It was some kind of balancing of healthy balancing, I'd say, of professional and personal situation. It never seems to be some grand plan. Yeah. Huh? Okay. So I remember when I first started using Slack. It was about four or five years ago, and it was awesome. So like we started using it. It was great. Way less emails, way less phone calls, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember starting to learn about the go-to-market motion because I was really curious, like, what is this thing and how did we start using it? And our engineering team was, were the first ones to start using it within my company. And they were bragging. They loved the fact that there was no salespeople. They were bragging about it. And then one of our engineering managers actually went on to be an engineering manager at Slack. I think he's still there. And so we were getting some kind of the insider info, no salespeople. At the time there was, you know, there's still articles on it now. If you look at Drift and some of these others, they wrote articles about how Slack was proud, beating their chest, that there was no salespeople, right? So I think today you fast forward and I think it's still a bottoms up driven model. While there might be salespeople, to your point earlier, it's a product-oriented sale that is really bottoms up. So has that changed? Yeah, I think in a healthy way, it's evolved, I would say, right? And so it's like, how do you take the best of that? Because it's it's quite magical when you have you know the freemium model where there's some usage internally and people get excited about it. So that's really powerful. And so we've really been thoughtful to kind of approach this in a bit of a unique way and maintain the best of all worlds. And so I can layer on that a little bit more because it has definitely changed in material ways as we've looked to gone, you know, bigger and to different companies and sometimes regulated companies that don't have any ground up usage. And so it definitely has evolved. But the other thing that's worth kind of sharing there is this is a a reference to Dan Pink, but he talks about to sell as human. And so the funny thing there is, you know, sales, of course, has all these different stereotypes but everyone's selling to some extent. The engineering managers are kind of selling to get resources for their projects, right? They're selling to get budget. They're selling to get headcount. You don't call it sales, but you know, if you're really thinking more about influencing and kind of winning mindshare, that's selling. Parents getting their kids to do their homework. So everyone's selling to some extent. But to answer your question, we do a lot of the same. We really try to tap into folks that have maybe started to use Slack on the web and really kind of help them understand it better and kind of take that goodness more broadly in their organizations. At the same time, we are going in cold sometimes, you know, at different levels of the organization, especially in regulated industries where they might not have any slack to date. Is there a tension that then is created between kind of a product first versus sales oriented motion? And maybe in the early days, I would imagine there was call it growing pains, but I don't know, is there a bit of a friction there around kind of the organic way of going from the bottoms up to, you know, in some cases having to go tops down or think about it in a a more enterprise emotion? I don't know what I call it. I guess it's fun to play with that idea, right? And it's like the, uh, the tension between the engineers and the sales folks. And what I'd say is, I think, you know, knock on wood, right, that that's worked really well in our organization. And 
in a healthy way, we push each other. Like if, if we can sell things over the web and credit card, that's low friction. That's great, right? And if, if people can serve themselves at the same time, you know, in these large organizations that have multiple constituents and really robust security and compliance needs, they're going to need more help being ushered through that process. And so I think it's a yes and. And I think we try to optimize for both. And like, what's the right motion for the right customer? And kind of how do we continue to evolve and iterate on that? And, you know, interesting, like Slack tying it together, the communication and collaboration that goes on between our engineering product sales and success teams is really pretty phenomenal. And we wouldn't be able to do it without Slack. So Slack helps that. But I think that that tight communication, transparency, prioritization is really, really important. Slack or no Slack. And then we're able to kind of do it faster and better in channels and Slack. This model, when it works, it's beautiful, right? I mean, it solves a lot of different go-to-market issues. And so in an idealized world, I think a lot of technical founders are really keen on trying this out. And it started with you and Dropbox and a few others really doing this groundswell from the bottoms up. And it, it works. And when it works, it works really well, but sometimes it doesn't. And I have a few ideas, maybe why it doesn't or what's tricky about it. Maybe from your perspective, What's hard about that model? Well, if you think about it, like I take the sales order side, it's probably a fairly unique product uh, solution orientation where, and I think I talked about it a little bit in Investor Day, is like, I don't know if I've seen too many companies that have been able to cater to the largest enterprises in the world with a feature set solution and product, and also able to cater to some of the smallest, most agile and kind of um, SMBs, right? To be able to cater to both of those audiences, there's not too many data points out there. So it's an ambitious undertaking. And I think kind of the product market fit is a really important prerequisite for that. And I think technology has changed too, right? So you just think about, I don't know, internet bandwidth, speed, mobile devices. I think there's a lot of things that have been changing in regards to the underlying technology that has enabled some of this as well. So starting there, and I think, I don't know, on the go-to-market side, I think just like starting with marketing and like prioritizing your audience, and that's a pretty broad audience, right? So how do you cater to the really agile SMB at the same time, you know, the publisher or the market, the cattle farmer, the cattle rancher, the police department, and at the same time, cater to some of the largest, most sophisticated organizations in the world and deploying to 350,000 people at IBM. They're very different kind of audiences and very different value propositions. So kind of optimizing a message to market and then just kind of structuring a go-to-market, whether you're, you know, you're segmenting by size or vertical or product, getting your kind of go-to-market fit with that. And it probably comes down like many things in a, in a either small growing organization or a big one, and that is prioritization. And so if everything's important, nothing's important. So I think you're faced with some very important prioritization questions. Do you feel like you lose control of the customer experience? Or maybe put a different way, do you think the customer experience is a product-led or sales-led motion? I think it is a yes and. So it all starts, I think, with their initial product experience, right? Is like their very first touch. You know, in that regard, maybe specific examples are, are helpful. But what we found in the early days was some of the feedback was similar to yours. Is I could just turn it on and use it. The user experience was kind of way better than things I'd experienced in the past. It's pretty intuitive. It's easy to use. It works, right? I think hearing from some customers, I would ask, what do you like about it? And they're like, it does what it says on the 10. It just works. And so that's powerful. The performance and speed and response times are good. But I think when you start to get into larger organizations, 
where you're really dealing less with a technology challenge, more with a cultural challenge of change and change management's hard. And so you'll hear some form from our customers of the software is easy, the change is hard. And so we've really invested in a success organization and experienced consultants and training and education to help people move from an old way of working to a new way of working. And so some of that's technology and some of that's product, but a lot of that is literally just human change and navigating that human change and kind of modeling what could looks like and helping bridge that change to a new way of working. And so I think, you know, in the small businesses, groups of pick a number, 25, 50, 100 people, it's pretty easy to pick it up and for a founder to drive it. But when you're getting into hundreds and hundreds of thousands of users, it's a bit of a different scenario. You just said something super interesting. Like, I don't think it's by accident that now your title is SVP of sales and customer success. So success rolls into the sales organization, which isn't always the case. Is that because you guys care so deeply about making sure that, to your point, it's one thing to get up and running. It's another thing to deploy it successfully and then manage through that change. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting. You talk to our team and one of the things I get really excited about and I'm really proud of is just that the team and how well we work together. I talked about our vision and also kind of our values, principles and objectives and how orienting around the team success, team culture, camaraderie, as well as the customer success. And so having those organizations or those teams work so closely together, almost the atomic unit of our account team is the AE, the SE, and the CSM. And then we've extended that over time, but that team works very, very closely together through the life cycle of a customer. And it's not siloed, it's one experience for the customer. You know, one of the things that makes me really happy is the AEs teeing up the SEs and CSMs for success, the, the CSMs working really hard to tee up the kind of AEs and SEs for success, all oriented around the customer. And then you see our win reviews and complementing each other in the extended team. But again, the North Star being the customer. So I don't know, maybe that is a little bit unique. Maybe it's becoming more standard in uh, you know technology companies is having those organizations together. But certainly... That has been an important attribute, I think, of our go-to-market and that alignment between teams. And I think our customers ultimately really appreciate that kind of seamless baton pass. And, and those teams are kind of working extremely closely together. Yeah, that's great. I want to read you a quote and just get your reaction to it. Bob Sutton, who's a professor of organizational behavior at Stanford, he says, for most people, scaling is about more, more employees, more customers, more revenue, more processes, more tiers of management. But scaling is actually a problem of less, says Sutton. There are a lot of things that used to work that don't work anymore, so you have to get rid of them. There are probably a bunch of things you've always done that slowed you down without you realizing it. Do you agree with it? And as you guys have gone through this hyperscale, what are some things that you've removed or maybe you disagree and have added? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and I think it maybe gets to the prioritization question, right? And another lens on this is saying no is sometimes just as important as saying yes. And it's often easy to say yes. And to drive prioritization, you have to say no to some things. I guess I'd say high level, we always try and design for simplicity and scale. And if you think of that of um, around teams, around org structure, around systems and process, you have just trying to be really thoughtful around some of the processes we design and ask. And so I think there's always a gravitation towards scope creep and, I don't know, more systems, more processes, more ask. And I think a large part of my role and my leadership team role is to, how shall I say this, remove some of that bureaucracy and minutia from the account teams so that they can engage and maximize their time with customers. 
And so, yeah, so I think there's a lot of truth in that. Less is more and it can become really noisy. And as you grow, there's a lot of priorities and whack-a-mole is the expression some use. Medic, account reviews, I mean, all of it. Some of the most effective managers are the ones that, that really try to remove, I think, some of the bureaucracy, shield the team from some of those asks. And, you know, you've got to prioritize some of those. And so I think one of the things we're always conscious of are like, what are the two or three things that we're really trying to drive and that we're consistent in that messaging and we're consistent in those priorities? Else you have a very confused team and it can lead to inefficiencies and unproductive energy. Yeah, cool. Growth levers. I guess I think the one that's top of mind and probably most obvious and just relevant right now is COVID. Maybe if you want to just start there, maybe this is an unexpected growth lever, but something that, you know, people feel the need to collaborate more. We need to do more digitally. I rely a lot more on email and Slack than I ever have before. Maybe we just start there. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting one. I guess the context to think about that one is how can we help? It's a really challenging time. It's really unique time in history and really uncertain macro environment. So I think being empathetic to the different situations of, of everyone out there and the customers and some industries are going through extremely trying times. Other industries are busier than ever. And so I think the first is just having consideration and empathy for the different situations that everyone's in. And then I think the next thing I'd say on that is Let's think of it as necessarily in the, the growth lever, although I guess if you broke it down, it would fall into some form of that. But I'll share a couple of higher level thoughts. One is in our outreach, we've really thought about how do we help? We've had incredible amounts of inbound interest in, in usage, as you might imagine, as people look to collaborate and communicate in a new way. So we've really put our kind of servant hats on is like, how can we help? How can we help these customers? Existing customers are relying on Slack more than ever. New customers are coming in. And so how do we kind of scale goodness and help them? The other thing that I was thinking through on this is, and Stuart shared some form of it, is we're seeing a transformation in the way people work. And this is really accelerating it, right? So you talk about digital transformation is a term that's pretty broad and overused, but a new way of working, maybe a transition from old ways of communicating in email to new ways of communicating in channels. And, you know, Stuart shared some form of this in June in our kind of investor day in uh, New York. But we believe this new way of working is so much better that it's inevitable. And that over time, everyone will be using Slack or something that looks very much like Slack because it is a new and better way of communicating. And so I think that the situation is kind of accelerating this move to a new way of working. And it'll be very interesting to see how things shake out over the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months. But, you know, at a high level, that's what I'd share is just a lot of empathy for the different situations out there, helping customers however we can, and then this acceleration to a new way of working. Absolutely. And I think maybe on the, call it planned growth levers, right? The ones that are systematic and hopefully will be uh, how you spend your time over the next four or five years. Going up market, you look at Shopify they, at the IPO, it's you know more of the SMB and mid-market, and then they start to kind of trend upwards from there. Some of the numbers that I looked at, Slack actually only increased its customer count 30% year over year, but its customers that were at 100K in ARR or more increased by 67%. And so if you blend them together, it's a net 60% revenue growth on really, and I put in air quotes, just a 30% growth in customer count. And this might've been from the previous fiscal year. I don't know, maybe just your reaction to that and thoughts on if that's a growth lever for you. There's different estimates of how many businesses there are in the world, and some of them kind of approach 200 million. And I think the last public number we shared 
for Slack customers is about 119,000. So if you think of that market penetration, 119,000 out of 200 million, there's just room for growth across all segments. Now, specific on kind of the enterprise side, we've been releasing results for the 100K plus customers, which as you reference, has been growing at a significant pace. And then we've also just started releasing the million dollar plus customers. And both those numbers have been growing in a significant way. So there's a lot of focus. And I think part of what makes Slack unique is the ability to to grow in the SMB segment and also to grow in the enterprise segment. And a lot of our energy is, you know, in the customer facing side is kind of on that mid-market plus segments because that's where there's more complexity in their decision-making process and they need a little bit more help navigating that process. And so if you think about it, it's, it's optimal for Slack if product and the web and efficient self-service model can serve the you know, 100 to 200 employee customers, which where there's a ton of volume, and then we can continue to drive growth on the enterprise side. So, Isn't it kind of funny? I mean, you come from the Salesforce world, right? The business applications. I mean, the million dollar customer that you're tracking now. I mean, I, I imagine in five years, that number is going to probably have another zero that you're tracking to because like a Salesforce, you're paying 20 to 100x, you know, what you're paying for Slack right now. And it, you know, some might argue it's equally as business critical. So yeah, you have, you know, over 50 plus paid million dollar customers. And I think that's going to only continue to accelerate. That's the plan. That's yeah. the plan. Stay tuned. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, another one is, Going global. So I think uh, international, your EMEA experience might lend well to this. More than a third of Slack's 100,000 plus customers are outside the US. This is, again, maybe somewhat old data, but that's still fairly concentrated in the US, but expanding pretty quickly. And I think with these, you know, public SaaS companies, globalization can happen at a much faster, more rapid pace. Maybe just your thoughts there. Yeah, no, high level, it's interesting. We were talking about kind of the the power of this dual engine go-to-market of self-service and, you know, customer-facing team. And so actually half of our daily active users are outside of North America, and that's in more than 150 countries. Now, we don't have a field team to cover 150 countries, so it's a really efficient kind of model, the web, to cover the universe. And then more specifically on the account teams, this may be, I don't remember the professor's name you referenced at Stanford, right? But we have to be pretty thoughtful around where we want to open entities and build more more offices. And so we've been investing pretty aggressively in building out Dublin. We have a big office, UK, France, Germany. We've just expanded into with not only on the product side language, but customer facing teams. Japan continues to be a big market. Started to do more and more um, with based on customer momentum in Korea, Melbourne, Sydney, and you'll see continued geographic expansion into some core markets. We're really trying to be thoughtful around prioritizing. And when you think about from an audience marketing, go-to-market entity perspective, but you'll continue to see international grow as we bring the goodness of Slack internationally. And, you know, you referenced a couple of other SaaS company examples and the SaaS wave sometimes hits San Francisco, LA, New York first, and then it permeates across different parts of the US. And I'd say similarly internationally is we're starting to then see pretty, you know, incredible growth in, in Europe and then in Asia. And as you would suspect, some of the usual suspects, top metro areas. And then after it hits those metro areas, it starts to permeate further into those countries. So exciting growth opportunities. And, you know, it's just making sure we're thoughtful and smart in, in how we prioritize our new markets. Definitely. And I think the other obvious one for me is paid versus free. 
you know? So you have maybe, I don't know, call it 100,000 paid customers and more than five times that that are using the free plan. What is the tipping point? What is the point where it starts to make sense for a customer to pay for it? And then how do you think about that as a potential growth lever moving forward? Yeah, maybe I'll quote Stuart, and that is, we want it to be pretty imbalanced in regards to the, the amount of value that we deliver for a customer related to the amount we charge. And so I think customers are getting, in many cases, almost all cases, significant amount of value from free usage. And I think when that value and that scale and that usage grows to the point where they want you know, to use more messages and to do more integrations and to provide more security and you know, more administrative capabilities, they'll grow into paid plans. And, you know, it would probably take some more time to go deeper there, but I'd say the high level comment would be, we want to continue delivering far more value than the price and the fees that we're charging for the service. Makes sense. You keep saying, take some more time and story for another time. You got to promise me Uh, I get get another episode to get all those stories in. (laughs) We'll circle back in in six months and maybe do a part two. Perfect. Any other growth levers that I didn't bring up that you're thinking through? You know, I think, like I said, the the main one is just bringing the value slack. It's really early days. And so I'd say this is super early innings. And and that data pioneers are at 119,000 paid customers and around 200 million business organizations around the world. So it's super early days and just being wise and prioritizing where we can help customers the most in kind of core markets and core industries. And so another growth lever we didn't talk about was just verticalization. And so there's certain verticals where we're seeing Slack being adopted really aggressively. And so as I say, media, for an example, is one, financial services, some retail, and you mentioned technology and development. So almost every leading technology company in the world in the software space utilizes Slack. And you think about often they're on the forefront of new technologies and adopting new technologies, but also they push the envelope in regards to speed, agility, kind of transparency. And so media is an interesting one because you've got editors collaborating with photographers, with correspondents in a very dynamic environment. And it's kind of the same if you think about it in, I don't know, triaging a technology incident or a website down. How do you pull multiple disciplines together to communicate and collaborate at pace and at scale with urgency? And if you think more broadly around the companies that are going to be most successful going into the next decade and decades to come, it is that agility and that transparency is going to be paramount to success. And so, again, we're in the early innings of that. We're seeing that naturally in, I'd say, use cases or workflows or business areas where speed and agility is just kind of a non-starter. But ultimately, that's kind of a prerequisite for all business to have agility and responsiveness. And so Slack's uniquely positioned to help customers with that. And you'll continue to see kind of probably some vertical specialization over time as well. $13 billion market cap in early days is a good spot to be. That's exciting. So, okay, I know we're bumping up to the top of the hour. Hopefully I can steal you for a couple minutes past competition because I want to make sure we talk about it. Famously, Slack put out the uh, Dear Microsoft letter. For those that are listening that haven't seen it, take a look. It's kind of awesome. But in November of 2016, Stuart took out a page of the New York Times and basically welcomed Microsoft to the competition. And there was kind of a David and Goliath moment, not to whatever, over-dramatize it. But now it's funny when you listen to Stuart talk about things, he'll actually say, well, Microsoft is not really competition. And uh, maybe I disagree a bit there. Just maybe your general thoughts on, look, I think competition is good for the consumer. I think it's good for businesses. Is it good for Slack? Yeah. So, you know, um, I was thinking about this one a little bit. 
Have you been watching The Last Dance with Michael Jordan? Yeah, watching or obsessing, yeah, whatever verb you want to use, yeah. Well, you know what's really interesting there is when you actually look at kind of the comments from Magic Johnson or the comments from Larry Bird or the comments from Kobe Bryant, right? It's this deep respect. And when they were on the court, they were battling it out. And when they're off the court, there's deep respect for each other, for the competition, for the game, just for the challenge. And so I'd say kind of staying high level, broadly speaking, competition's good. It makes you better. It pushes you to be your best. It gives you kind of focus and purpose. And it's good for, in that case, the fans, but I think good for consumers, right? The other thing I'd say, blending a little bit into the business context now is it validates the market. How big would the market be? Would it be a market if there wasn't people competing for the prize or for the market? So I'd say it validates that. The other thing I'd say, a little more specificity, is it really drives us and, you know, more broadly competitors to clarify their message and differentiation. And at the end of the day, it's a consumer or customer that wins if everyone's bringing their best to the market. So that's high level. I think Stuart's recent comments, and as you mentioned, the current environment we're in, have clarified some things. And if you think about it, a lot of folks that are using the tool set, it's, it's Skype, right? It's Skype for business and a lot of video conferencing and a lot of video calling. And Slack's a little bit unique in that we're really close partners with Zoom. We're partners with Cisco and WebEx. And in the same way, we've recently released an integration to Skype for Business teams for video calling. And we have some customers, I think one of them went on record recently, Viacom CBS, of how they use Slack, but they also use Teams because it is kind of a wrapper around SharePoint. It's early days in this market space. And I think as time progresses, customers are going to increasingly see there's some pretty material differences there. And we can circle back in a podcast V2 maybe in six or 12 months and, and go more on that story. But suffice to say at a high level, there's some pretty material differences in, in architecture and scale and in what the product's doing that I think are going to become more evident as the months pan out here. I love it. And I think maybe the preamble for this is, you know, some public data that I was looking at, 70% of Slack's customers also pay for Office 365. And so that means they're paying a lot more for Slack versus just using Teams for less or in most cases, just free. And so I do think the competition to some degree is forcing you to evolve a bit faster. Some of the workflow features, share channels, some of the big pushes in the company that are also then creating some network effects for you, which then help kind of grow the business as a growth lever as well. For sure. And it's, you know, it's an interesting one because these are, you know, some of the, many of those are the million dollar plus customers. And you know, there's a lot of smart people in those organizations across the business, across security, across IT. And there's a really valid reason why they chose to sign a contract and write a check to Slack when they quote unquote could have had it for free. Free is not always free. And again, the value statement there, if the value is there and we're delivering, and to your point, that was publicly referenced 70% of our top customers are Microsoft Office customers. So I think orienting into customers and their success, we'll continue to look at that interoperability and the ability to, to seamlessly integrate with their tool stack. And we put a lot of energy in that. And then from the sales team perspective, how does competition rally the troops? Like in Salesforce's example, you were at Salesforce, there's no real competitor. Like there's been folks that have popped up and Salesforce's bottom and whatever, but it's almost harder when you're fighting an invisible enemy. I don't know, how do you think about that? Well, I mean, Microsoft was a big competitor to Salesforce as well. And I think you think, go back a ways, Oracle. I mean, it's like in each of these, there is the nemesis, I guess, right? There's a competitor. It's interesting. The biggest competitor for Slack is doing nothing, right? I think working the way you used to work. And so I think if you kind of try to put it on 
everyone likes to kind of make it real with a name. But I think one of the biggest competitor we face is just people continuing to do work the way they used to do work. And email is now 35 years old. I did it this way for 35 years. Why should I consider changing? And, you know, data point after data point out there now of movement to this new way of working. So it'll be interesting to see. But I think it gives a little pep in the step, right? It gets people fired up. They have to come in with their A game. So mentioned where we started maybe is like, you know, we recruit motivated people that are goal oriented and kind of want to go out there and, and win and help their customers be successful. And you don't want your customer using a suboptimal tool or not being successful. So if you're really highly indexed on helping your customer be successful, lining up a solution that can help them be successful personally and professionally, I think it is clarifying. It gives the team energy and it kind of in a healthy way forces us to raise our game and bring our best to the market every day. I think to your earlier point, like, so you, you're hiring competitive and motivated people. I mean, to your MJ example, Jordan, I couldn't believe this. He would make up stories about the opponent in these series just so that it would bring the best out in him. And so <laughs> I do think if, you know, maybe Jordan's an extreme example, but if you find that right kind of essence of person that's super competitive, it really helps to know what you're up against. And I think it brings out the best in you when it's time to perform. I just watched the episode where Magic in the Olympics practice game challenged Jordan. And it was a practice game, right? And, uh, you know, Jordan then just kind of went went a little bit crazy in a, in a healthy way. But he was just, you know, brought out the best in him. And then they're hugging it out and kind of loving each other afterwards. So it's a good story. Absolutely. And I know I'm over already. I'm stealing more of your time, but like two or three more questions and I'll get you out of here. The bear case against Slack is that there isn't a competitive moat. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I think numerous things. I'll, I'll give you some feedback from customers. One is if you look at the data on engagement, meaning who's using it and what's their experience. And I'd say usage is a prerequisite for value. And Slack is massively differentiated versus other options in the market in regards to the engagement and usage numbers. That's one thing that's really important. Another thing that's really important to point out is our platform strategy and how our customers are using Slack to integrate to pretty much anything and everything. So ServiceNow, Salesforce, Atlassian, SAP, Oracle, Concur, the open nature of our platform and the ease of integration and success of those integrations and the app directory is, again, very different in a big contrast to how some of the other players are going to market, many that are just looking to enhance their own stack or their own tools. So that's a second piece. And the third, we talked a little bit about shared channels and the ability to extend this channel-based communication beyond the four walls of your organization. So pretty much every top company has vendors and partners and customers that they work with. And think about bringing the elegance and power of channel-based communication beyond your four walls to your key vendors, to your key partners, and to your key customers to increase the fidelity of that communication. And Slack's uniquely positioned to do that. And kind of on the competitive side, we talked about some of the architectural challenges, specifically with Microsoft. They don't have the architectural backbone to, to scale to that degree. So I think you're going to see that play out over time as a um, pretty big differentiator. I have a channel with my producer for this podcast and nice. you know he probably hates it because I'm thinking of all the time <laughs> with, with changes and edits, but absolutely. I love that it's a singular focus. Like you guys are all in and on one experience for the customer and doing that in a singular, really focused way, I think gives you edge. And I, I really like that. So well, let's wrap it up here. You've already promised me twice I was taking count of a second episode, so I'll hold you to that. In closing, what does the word grit mean to you and how do you apply it or your teams apply it? 
It's interesting. I'll give you maybe two references and then a little bit of personal background. But there's a quote from Calvin Coolidge on persistence, and I won't read the whole thing, but it talks about nothing in the world can take the place of persistence and, you know, not talent, not genius, persistence and determination alone are omnipotent, which is a Calvin Coolidge quote. And then more recently, I got really turned on to uh, recent being like, I don't remember, four or five years ago, Angela Duckworth and her TED talk on grit. And really interestingly, she was a teacher, I think, in the New York school system, but she noticed that something was consistent in some of the top performing students, and it wasn't just IQ. It was actually their determination. And so her definition is grit is passion and persistence over a sustained period of time applied towards long-term achievement. And I really like that because it highlights you control your destiny. It's your focus. It's your work ethic. It's your approach. Nothing's predestined. It is kind of your application of your energy, your passion, you can achieve it. And so that rings true. And I mentioned kind of sports and I grew up with a lot of sports and I see that relevant in sport. We were talking about Jordan as a bit of a unique case, but there's so many examples of that, but also in business. And that is, if you are focused on something, you want something, you put your energy towards it, I believe you can achieve it. So I think it's just a really uplifting kind of uh, optimistic message. And I've seen it so many times ring true. So it's really fun to see teams display that in the field and then to celebrate and recognize and reward when it happens. It's just kind of a part of teamwork that I really enjoy. I love that you uh, brought up Angela Duckworth. That book, Grit, is actually what inspired the title of the podcast. I just think it's unbelievably corollary to sales and selling. If someone wants to get a hold of you, how should they? And is Slack hiring for anyone that might be a, a sales rep or a sales leader in listening to the show? Yes. Yeah, so... A lot of demand out there for Slack, and we want to bring the goodness of Slack to everyone around the world. So we're, we're definitely hiring pretty much across the board, um, whether it's engineering, but also pre-sales, sales, customer success. And then how do people get a hold of me? I was thinking, how did you get a hold of me? Where I pick up the most time is if it's reference from someone I know and trust is the best way to get a hold of me. I'm on LinkedIn. And then I'm trying to think, you know, I don't know if this was your way of prompting, like, what's the best way to kind of reach out? But always, I think, to the degree, if you can leverage and utilize an existing relationship, that's always great. Otherwise, if you hit something that's compelling and relevant, that's another thing that's important. I had an unfair advantage with investors in Mamoon and Ilya that were uh, yeah, able to that's true. finagle me in. Thank you so, so much for your time, Bob. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you and I will see you next time.